0: What a joy to be able to be gathered together in worship, to see your faces. You know, in the first service and and also in this service, I I found myself, um, it's kind of creepy, I guess, in a way, but I wanted to look at you. (laughs) I wanted to see your faces. You're creeping me out, man. But uh, to know your stories and to know your journeys and to know that God is in process in you and, wow, it's like, there's like hundreds of stories that I'm looking at. And there's something about that that's sort of humbling and, and really cool all at the same time. We're really glad to have some campus students here with us today. Uh, ACF, double ACF, Navigators, are there any other ministries that are represented? International Christianville, you guys are always with us. We love you guys. Uh, are there any other ministries that are uh, represented here from, from Penn State today? Can we say welcome to these guys? What wonderful to have you guys here. How many of you have finals this week? How many of you, when you raised a hand, you were raising your hand because of finals that you have this week? Lord, extra grace, blessing, favor. It's a stressful time, but it's also a time of excitement as you come to the end of a semester, and we're trusting that it will be a, uh, a season where you are able to contemplate God's good work through the challenges as well as through the joys. Hey, I want to give just a quick update. Dan had mentioned in the announcement time At the beginning, for those of you who are with us, we talked about the giving to the Great Commission Fund as a special thing. So we did a little update on our giving page, um, which we have the the website here for people use this for various things in terms of the giving. We did a little bit of of updates just as we're thinking about kind of year end kind of things. We want to highlight a couple of things to you. And and in the spirit of that, I said to the staff, I said, I want to just share a couple of words uh, to our church family. The first of which is really just to say a huge thank you. Uh, we, are, we are coming to the end of a year that has been obviously very tumultuous, very challenging on a lot of different fronts, but we're praising God that as we come to the end of this year that we are looking to finish this year with giving uh, greater than expenses, so that's always a win. Our financial people go, Woo, okay, good job. Uh, but that's a product of your faithful giving, and we recognize that in a year with lots of disruption And it would probably be very easy to say, oh, we're not going to give or we're going to do other things. But to show your faithfulness, your encouragement, your support uh, by simply leaning in and your giving, that's a huge, huge win. So we want to simply say thank you to you for that. And I want to highlight just a couple of things. If you go to that giving page this week, you're going to notice a couple of things. We are highlighting the giving to the Great Commission Fund. Our church actually does a lot of giving to missions and mission-related things. And we love that. We, you know, we're not just about trying to build up what's happening within the four walls of this, this facility or this uh, even organization, but we try to think bigger. We want to be a part of what God's doing on a global scale. And so if you have a heart for missions, and especially if you've never given to the Great Commission Fund, that is our primary arm of giving to our national ministry and work. And literally it's sending, as you heard in the video, sending workers all over uh, the world to the front lines of ministry. And so that's a great opportunity. We would encourage you to take advantage of, especially Especially some of you as you're thinking about year-end giving. Another maybe more specific, that, that one's kind of a big general bucket, but we also have a lot of missional opportunities. And we wanted to highlight one this month with Esperanza de Ana, which is a uh, Peru orphanage, Uh, Peruvian orphanage that we actually helped to build and uh, they're doing some interesting sponsorship things of some different family things And so if that's on your heart as you look at our giving page and you say, you know what? I'd like to be a part of that uh, That's a very specific way that you could give the other thing that I want to note If you look at that page that you'll see our faith forward, which is part of our building campaign We did a massive expansion of this building uh, several years ago. We're actually three years in, and you know, I want to just say as a celebration, we're three years into actually using the new facility and the new places, and we are already into our last third of retiring that debt. So that's a great praise. And we're, we're coming to the end of a two-year cycle. So in, in December, we'll end what was a two-year commitment. Several of you gave pledges to say we're going to help with that next, next thing. And so we're going to kind of see where we are at the end of that two-year cycle coming through year-end stuff. And then we're going to put our sights on, you know, knocking out the last third of that, now less than a third. And so we're going to keep you updated on those things. So lots of exciting things that are happening. I wanted to mention that to you, but specifically to say thank you. Your your generosity uh, is making a huge difference, and may it continue as we continue to move forward. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to read to you a scripture that we actually looked at when we started uh, this Advent series, which we've entitled Child of the Promise. We know who the child is that we're celebrating in Christmas time, uh, but we're looking at some of the many promises that are connected to his coming, his first Advent, and of course looking forward to the ultimate uh, fulfillment of those promises in his second coming, which we're going to talk about here a little bit today. Um, But I wanted to read this passage with you again uh, and then use it as sort of a springboard, especially as we come to the last verse, which is where we're going to springboard from today. Uh, Matthew 4, verses uh, 12 through 17, we're going to hear some quotation of some very sort of common Christmas prophecy from Isaiah uh, that's quoted in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, it says now when he that is Jesus heard that John had been arrested he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea in a territory in the territory of Zebulun in Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled and that is the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan Galilee Of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, this is a very common passage that we quote around Christmas time, but what I would like us to do is continue through to the next verse, which is where we'll begin our message today. It says, From that time, verse 17, Jesus began to preach. Saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. May God add blessing to the reading of his word this morning. I want to just focus on that verse in particular today, though we will look at various passages of scripture, so keep your Bibles kind of handy. We'll flip through uh, and look at a lot of different verses today. But from that time, Jesus began to preach, and the summary of his message essentially boiled down to this Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I want to introduce that to you as the third of our promises that we're looking at. The first one was that the light is dawning, and we looked at this passage of Scripture. The second one, last week we talked about the curse is broken. And this week, today, we want to talk about the kingdom has come. That's our third Advent promise that we're going to look at in our series. Uh, while you're thinking about that for just a moment, I want to kind of orient us. I've got a couple of quotes from some, some famous dead people uh, that I would like to share with you, um, but I actually wanted to begin with a, with a brief story. Uh, in our house, we drive used cars. Is anybody else a good used car driving family? Okay, like the used car, right? And we drive them pretty used, like the car that I drove in today to church has 170,000 miles on it almost, and you know, that's, and we're probably going to keep that car for a while, you know, it's got some, it's got some life in it, right? So you drive used cars, you get quirky cars, you know, so they're not like right off the lot, you get everything working pretty much perfectly or whatever, the longer you drive it, the more things kind of get kind of weird. I had a car, not the one I'm driving currently, but a little while ago that um, had an interesting quirk that I uh, had never experienced before. And that was the gas tank, uh, the, 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 the reader, like the, the, when you look at the gas gauge, it would go down to a quarter of a tank and then stop, which was an interesting little check. Has anybody ever had that experience with their used cars? Okay, oh, yeah. It's an interesting, it's a slightly terrifying thing because you're like, oh, I'm on a quarter of a tank. I have no idea what that means. And I found out that I had no idea what it means because I was driving on Atherton Street and there was all kinds of traffic and my car just stopped running. And I was like, I have a quarter tank of gas. What's going on here? But I didn't have a quarter tank of gas. So I took it into the, the, the shop and they were like, yeah, you got this kind of interesting little trick. Your car is going to play on you. So three quarters of a tank, you're good. Half of a tank, you're good. Quarter of a tank, could be anything. You could be almost empty. So that was an interesting quirk. And I share that with you because it reminds me that there's sort of a need to be able to correctly assess your reality, right? When you think one thing, but in actuality, you're living another, that can be in best case frustrating. Sometimes it can be very dangerous, And I think in your spiritual life, as we contemplate the promises of Jesus, in many ways, what we're doing is trying to sort of align our lives to kingdom thinking that he has put in place, to kingdom truth that he has done that don't always feel like our reality. And we shared last week when we talked about the curse is broken, the curse doesn't always feel broken. And I think the message that we're looking at today is sort of a companion message to that the kingdom has come, but sometimes we look around to say, I'm not even sure where that's happening, and I'm not even 100% sure what that means when Jesus talks about kingdom. So that's our promise that we're going to look at today. But I think that there's something that really is, is good that comes out of this. You know, especially I, I love, you know, being able to speak to young people in their 20s, because oftentimes what you are in the process right now is stepping into that kind of critical question of like, what is your life going to actually do? Like, where are you actually going to go? What kind of mark are you going to leave in this world? And what are you going to give yourself to in the next few decades when you think about vocation and you think about family and you think about calling and you think about all of those sort of things? And so when we talk about the promises of Christ, in many ways, we're talking about like, what is kind of the purpose of my life? And I was thinking about these two quotes. I found them to be sort of interesting, and maybe they'll center us a little bit as we get ready to talk about this today. Leo Tolstoy, he said this famously, why should I live? Why should I do anything? Some of you college students are asking that question right now. What am I supposed to be doing with my life? Why should I do anything? And then he asked this specifically. This is at the height of his, his career, height of his success, world famous in all that he had said. He said, is there anything in life and any purpose which the inevitable death that awaits me does not undo and destroy. Now, this is either a man in the middle of his midlife crisis trying to figure things out or wrestling with the real existential questions about purpose. C.S. Lewis famously said this, one of my favorite quotes. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made For another world. And when Jesus says that the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is in your midst, he actually said a whole lot more than that about the kingdom. He talked about it a ton. What he is talking about is, in many ways, I think the answer to the existential question that we ask What is my purpose? What is my life for? And here comes Jesus saying, I'm actually going to show you by showing you a kingdom that is very different than the world that you're in. So our third promise today, the kingdom has come. We said last week that a key question is not whether I know the promises that have been made, but rather, do I trust the one who has made them? And I think that's so critical for us to wrestle with, especially if we're going to handle some gritty promises like the curse is broken or that the kingdom has come. So I want to just look at three things when we talk about kingdom today. The first one is the notion of kingdom defined. And then I want to talk about the kingdom opposed, which many of you are going to say, that kind of finally makes sense in my life. Why is the kingdom feeling so opposed? Because it is. And then finally, the kingdom in your midst. What does that actually mean? So the first point, kingdom defined. Uh, so we read this just a few moments ago, Matthew four seventeen. from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I want to take the most time of this sermon in this first point, if we can settle into it for just a moment. I find it sort of fascinating. So Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry, and he's beginning to preach, and the distilled message, I mean, how awesome is it that you can actually see the thesis statement of really what he was all about? So we could have talked about a hundred things, could have talked about a lot of topics, and yet when you really distill down what was Jesus beginning to proclaim when he stood up and began to speak and teach publicly and minister, it was this. Repent. Repent. Turn away from your sin. Turn to God. There has to be a turning in your life. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, he used those things synonymously, is at hand. As if he was saying there is a new way of being. And there's, we're going to look at this, this specific uh, uh, definition. There is life as God intends it. And it is at hand. And there is nothing in your life. Just, just get your head around this for a moment. There is nothing in your life that is so valuable that you couldn't or shouldn't desire to give it up to get this new way of living That God is bringing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message, okay? The kingdom is mentioned 126 times in the gospel of Jesus. And I found this fascinating, especially when I started listening to people like Reggie McNeil, who I've gotten to hear him speak a handful of times, and I've read some of his books and things like that. I'm gonna quote him today in the message. When he began to point out to me the reality that Jesus didn't talk very much about church. I think I'm hearing myself. Did, you, did somebody just hear like me repeat myself? Like in the, in the ether? It's really weird. But I think I was making a good point. Now that I hear it, I was making a great point. Jesus didn't talk about church, at least not a lot or not in the way that we oftentimes think about church, especially if we grew up in the church. Many of us grew up in the evangelical church. Church is a part of what we do. You are here today because on one level or another, or you're joining us online because church is somehow a part of your routine. So it sort of struck me as a little bit interesting, a little bit frightening, to be honest with you, when I realized Jesus didn't actually talk about church very much. He did some. He said things to Peter, like, on this rock I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. He he talked about it, but he talked a ton about kingdom. 126 times he references kingdom in the gospel. So things like when he taught his disciples to pray, I'll give you just a couple examples so you don't think I'm making this up. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He said, that's how you ought to pray, Matthew six ten. When he preached his sermon on the mount, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these other things will be added unto you, Matthew 6, 33. When he rebuked the religious leaders of the day, which he saved his harshest criticism, incidentally, for the religious elites of the day, he was asked by the pharisees when the kingdom of god would come and he answered them the kingdom of god is not coming in ways that can be observed nor will they say look here it is or there for behold the kingdom of god is in the midst of you to which i am sure some of the religious elites were like i have no idea what he's talking about What is he say? what is he actually saying when Jesus was ministering to the oppressed, which he did a lot of that, setting captives free and uh, setting demoniacs free, uh, he actually said this when he was challenged for doing it because he oftentimes did it at the times that were not uh, very uh, amenable to the religious elites of the day. And this is what he says in Luke eleven twenty. 20, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So he talked about kingdom sort of a lot. Of course all of this connects to the ministry and the mission of Jesus I was thinking about Luke 4 I've preached out of Luke 4 a lot I think I'm just fascinated by it uh the way in which Jesus as he began his earthly ministry do you know the first thing that happened to Jesus when he began his earthly ministry do you remember what happened began his earthly ministry beginning of Luke 4 anybody know what he did wilderness. He goes to the wilderness, and there is a clash of kingdoms, right? He's tempted by the enemy. So just file that. I'm going to reference that later on in this message, but that's, that's something that, that's just kind of noteworthy to me. And then he comes back, and he begins to do his public preaching and teaching, and there's healing, and there's this expression, there's this outpouring of kingdom things, and people are kind of intrigued by, there's this big following of, of who is this Jesus, right? And then he comes to his hometown, and he goes to the temple, and he reads from the scroll in Isaiah, from Isaiah 61. Remember this? And he says, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. This was kind of like the big unveiling, and it did not go well for the religious people. They did not like this idea of the kingdom of God showing up, or at least in ways that they were not uh, feeling good about. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. He has recovered sight of the blind. He has set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you read Isaiah 61, which is where he's quoting, you also are going to hear about beauty for ashes, a garment of praise, restoration of generational desolation. That's a mouthful, but think about what he is connecting himself to. An exchange of shame and dishonor for joy. These are the prophetic words of Isaiah 61 that Jesus is referencing in Luke chapter 4. Reggie McNeil, who I referenced just a minute ago, I'm going to give you a quote from him because I think he's probably the best author uh, in this. When you say, like, what are we talking about when we talk about the kingdom of God? He would define it this way He would say, the kingdom, Jesus taught, is the major work of God on planet Earth. God is busy in the world, reclaiming territory held captive by a usurping dark kingdom. If you're taking notes, just kind of highlight that or write that down. He not only taught a kingdom message, he also lived the kingdom. He healed the sick. He comforted the afflicted. He inspired hope for a better world. He embodied the life that God intends. And I think when I'm trying to get my head around, what does it actually mean to contemplate this Advent promise, the coming of Christ, that the kingdom of God is among you, the kingdom of God is in your midst, the kingdom of God is at hand, it is the kingdom being defined as life as God intends. Now I guarantee you, every one of us that raised a hand and said, I have a need, every one of us that feels the stress of life and the, the, just the, the, thing, the burdens that we carry, what we are longing for at our deepest and basement level is life as God intends. There's a heart longing for kingdom and for kingdom things. Now, I would go and take it another step farther. The great sadness, when you think about the condition of the the christian world is that while jesus emphasized kingdom we have put tons of emphasis over multiple generations on church and we say essentially if we can get this right If we can kind of have a good experience on Sunday morning, we come together and this guy's happy and she's happy and people are giving and we're above, you know, all that kind of stuff, then we're somehow doing it. But the fact of the matter is, and this is where any of us that take church seriously or take a walk with Jesus seriously, and especially those of us who would say we're taking kingdom promises seriously, we have to be bothered by this question or statement that you can have church and miss kingdom. You hear what I said? You can have church, and you can miss kingdom. Now, some of you would say, well, yeah, but if you're doing church right, you're going to get kingdom. And I would agree with you, but I'm saying your experience and mine would say you can attend, you can go, you can participate, but you can miss out on the work of God. And collectively, we can do that. So that should bother us. That should challenge us to think bigger. Think about the fact that Jesus says there is a life that God intends. So Jesus didn't talk about church. But he spoke about kingdom. Now, the other interesting thing, I didn't highlight this in the first service. I think it's important that I do this here. Um, When we talk about mission, we just did a whole series of Church on Mission. When we talk about kingdom, the beauty and the power of the ecclesia, the church, the called out ones, is actually not what we get to do here. This is great. This is important. This is good. There's an importance to gathering together, but it's what happens when you go out to your various mission fields and the places where God has called you that the strength of the church is actually seen. So Reggie McNeil, who I've mentioned here a couple of times, you know, he would say he's not down on institutional church. He said the institutional church is actually the greatest bundle of social capital in most communities, but unless that is turned into sort of kingdom potential, we end up doing church and oftentimes missing kingdom. So we got a definition that we want to work with, life as God intends, and the strength of it happens when we gather and then go and see that uh, embodied in us. The second point that I'd like to look at is is this notion of the kingdom opposed. Uh, So I find this interesting. It says, again, coming back to the starting verse, Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why the repent? Like, why Why is that necessary? Unless Jesus, looking at his world... And looking at the state of people, realize that there are kingdoms that are in conflict. Until we turn away from the things that shake up our soul, especially the world, the flesh, and the devil, there's got to be a turning away because the kingdom of God is at hand. I would say it this way, if life as God intends was easy, everybody would do it. Like, I don't think I know anybody, whether they're a person of faith or not, that would say, you know, living under what seems to be the blessing of of God and a a blessed life, and so I'd I'd probably take that. If it was easy, everybody would do it. And our world would look different. Your world would look different. But it's not easy. It's, in fact, a kingdom that is opposed. You know, it's important that you know your opposition, right? I mean, if if you're the coach of a team, you would be foolish to go into your competition without doing a little bit of scouting. Right, I mean that's a, that's a major industry, you know. And I, I even think about like uh, I, I'm a nerd a little bit. I follow I follow chess sometimes. It just sounds so nerdy when I say that. Oh, uh, I mean I don't follow follow chess, but I kind of do a little bit. So, but the scouting that that goes into these high level matches, you know, that these guys are like, I know if I start with Queen E5. of the time, my opponent counters with a Baravian Knight's defense. I mean, it's, (laughs) thank you. You're a bigger nerd than I am. But this whole notion of like, you better know what you're doing when you sit down and say, I want to actually compete at this table. And in many ways, I think that one of the the big lacks that we have, we say, oh, the great promise of Advent is that the kingdom of God is here. But we have no idea that that means that the kingdom of God is here and stands in opposition to everything else that is kind of hardwired into you and into your world. And that's why it's hard to follow Christ. That's why you're dealing with God frustrations on a regular basis. Jesus didn't talk about church. He spoke about kingdom, but that kingdom is so, when we talk about it, and I've already mentioned here, you've got to know your opposition. Uh, Christian theology would simply say, yeah, we've got to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil. These have been singled out by sources from Thomas Aquinas to the Council of Trent as, and I'm quoting here, implacable enemies of the soul. And some of you are saying, I'm not sure if I know what the word implacable means. Because when I first read it, I said, I'm not sure if I know what implacable means. <laughs> It means relentless, that there's a relentless opposition to kingdom work in your life. Now, I find this also very interesting. I referenced the beginning of Luke chapter 4 and Jesus going out into the wilderness. What did he experience when he was out there? What were the temptations that the devil threw at him? Number one, the flesh, turn these stones into bread. Number two, the world, to tempt God by casting himself off the pinnacle. Number three, the devil himself, to worship Satan. He had to deal with the flesh and the world and the devil. Ephesians chapter two says it this way. You once walked following the course of this world. There's one of them. Following the prince of the power of the air. That's the second one. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's the third one. So the the flesh and the world and the devil, that is a part of this opposition that we face. I say one other thing about the importance of understanding kingdom. So if we're going to get this. When we talk about embracing the kingdom of God, ministering out of the kingdom of God, understanding, yes, that is opposed. But I want you to understand this and hear this. If you're a parent here today, your kids are not walking away from kingdom they are walking away from institutional church. Does that make sense? Institutional church does not equip me or you or the next generation or whatever to deal with the world and the flesh and the devil. The presence of God The life of God and his kingdom come actually does. So other people have said it this way. You know, a lot of people are leaving ministry right now. (laughs) I get it. You know, I understand. In fact, we heard somebody say recently in our prayer thing, they said, I don't know what Home Depot would do in their hiring strategy without the uh, abundance of people leaving the ministry to go work there. You know, but people aren't leaving the ministry because of kingdom work. People are leaving the ministry because of institutional church. Because of the cheap substitute for the presence of God. So we've got to know our opposition. We've got to know what this is. We've got to understand the real thing. And I want to, I want to just do, do one of the things. I'll, I'll save this one for the, for the next point. Let's go, let's go to the next point. So the kingdom is opposed. It's not going to be easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it. And yet you are called to be a kingdom person. The third advent promise, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Uh, point number three that takes us there I find it interesting when Jesus says Matthew 4 17 from that time Jesus began to preach saying repent for the kingdom of God is at hand it is here this is again the rub that we face because for many of us we would say it doesn't feel like it's here or at least not all the time in the same way that we said last week the curse is broken but it doesn't feel broken all the time. In fact, sometimes it feels very much alive and well. Uh, smarter theologians and people than myself have used the phrase, the already but not yet kind of understanding of things like this. John Piper writes this. He says, the picture that you get in the gospels as Jesus unfolds his teaching of the kingdom is that it is both present and it is still future. In fact, that is what he means when he says the mystery of the kingdom is here. There is presence without consummation. In fact, I mean, just to underscore this a little bit, I'm not going to dwell on it for a long time, but in Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells a parable about the the land owner, the master that goes away and leaves the talents. He talks about that in Luke chapter 19. And it says specifically, if this was not on the nose enough for you, it says specifically, he told them this parable because they were asking a question about the kingdom. They were saying, why isn't the kingdom here in its fullness immediately now? And Jesus, knowing that it was not going to be immediately now in all of its fullness, he tells them this parable. And the parable is the leader goes away, the master goes away. He's coming back with an expectation having established his kingdom. And so we dwell in this place of already, but not yet. You are already positionally sanctified, and you're not yet finished in the work that God has for you, right? You are already a child of God if you're in Christ today, and you have a lot of work yet to do. All of these kind of things, already but not yet. The kingdom of God is already at hand. It is already established through Christ's first advent, but will not be consummated until his second one. So I want to wrap up with just a couple practical things. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is among you. These are, this is our, our third promise. So I have to ask myself the question, what do I do with that? you know, even if I'm starting to understand it a little bit better and understanding that, you know, the the usurping kingdom and Jesus taking back that which was stolen, the fact that my life actually plays a part, that's that purposeful thing again. And then understanding there's an opposition, understanding my reality so I'm not driving around with no gas thinking I've got a quarter tank, right? So all of those pieces are there. What do I actually do with this? What does this mean for me as a kingdom person? Well, I'm going to give you five things. Uh, some of these come from Reggie McNeil's book that I referenced a minute ago called Kingdom Collaborators. He actually has eight, uh, and I kind of pared them down a little bit. Some of these come from some other sources, but I'd ask us to consider this. Number one is a kingdom person. We view the church as a movement rather than an institution. For many of us, we, we have no problem with this, and if the last years have not shown us that we've got to be movement, flexible, able to, to move with the way that God opens and closes doors. Um, I don't know what else would teach us that, but we need to view the church as movement rather than institution. So vitally important. I think when we get that, we go into a whole nother realm of sort of kingdom understanding. It means you can look at your life as a part of this church movement and say, wait a minute, God is calling me to be on mission and the places that he's planted me. He's calling me to be salt and light. So many of you doing front yard missionary, front yard mission kind of stuff. I mean, this is all the like, right now, like I have a calling to be salt and light. And I find purpose in that. So we see the church as movement rather than institution. Um, we talked about, I think enough, the institutional side of church and the downfalls there today. Uh, number two. We practice a robust prayer life in which we are listening for God's voice and leading. You know, I love, I love, love, love the way that some of you all pray. Because I I see in I I look at you and I say, I want to be like that when I grow up. I want to be like you when I grow up, incidentally. That's not a random one. I I actually like you a lot. Um, But the sense of praying... With a listening heart, like you can't be movement. You can't be a movement church if you're not listening to the to the shepherd. You know, so as a kingdom person, we're actually we're listening when we're when we're praying. So I mean, you, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. But I think an important part when we gather tonight for our Living Water service, part of what we're doing is we're saying we we're trying to hear from God, because if we don't hear from God, and if we're not His presence isn't manifested among us. That's actually number three that I'm going to get to. Uh, What do we actually have to offer? You know, so number three, manifest presence. We actually seek the manifest presence of God. All of the things that we even reference today in Jesus' ministry, when he's casting out demons and healing the sick, and he's setting captives free and bringing joy instead of shame, like all of these, these are kingdom expressions of the manifest presence of God. To be a church that would be known for that, That would be a church that people would actually be interested in going to, as opposed to a church where you come and you just go through the motions or whatever. So we actually seek the manifest presence of God. We don't manipulate it. We don't, you know, we don't try to create something. It's God's timing, but we seek his manifest presence. We pursue that. Number four, we shape a people development culture. This is right out of Reggie's book. You know, we want to be about developing people. There's a reason that we invest in campus ministries, that we want to see you guys being uh, strong in your faith as you grow, having opportunities to develop in the things that God is calling you to. We just recently uh, sent a a check our leadership did in the uh, Bible training of a young man in Kenya, that we've been uh, working with and uh, helping him get some training. That's that's people development. This is a young man who I actually got to visit with when he was here in the United States. And he said, one of my great burdens is the fact that we don't have a solid uh, biblical foundation in the villages where I live and stuff. We've got all kinds of health and wealth gospel and things and we need people to stand up and tell the truth. And we said, well, hey man, let's train you and send you. Because we wanna be about people development. A relatively small investment to see uh, a kingdom win. So we shape, uh, we shape a people development culture. And then five, um, I'm going to wrap up with this, and I think this is maybe our most important one. We maintain optimism, recognizing that the kingdom has not yet fully come. Man, when you have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning and you're dealing with opposition of self and sin and flesh and the devil and everything like that. And then you remember that the kingdom of God has come. There's a reason that the early church who was taught to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. They prayed, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Because they knew there are some things that are not going to be set right until he sets them right. And so this is why we don't lose heart even in the midst of the hardship. Billy Graham said of those who followed Jesus... In their time, he said they were unique in their generation. And he said they turned the world upside down because their hearts had been turned right side up. The world has never been the same. And that's the promise that the kingdom has come. Father, thanks for your kingdom coming. And we, we, have, a lot of, we have a lot of growing to do in this. And um, I find myself... I find find myself sort of torn between two worlds because we are. Because we are. And yet you have given us a promise. You have given us a promise that your kingdom is at hand. And we would say, as the Apostle Paul said, that we we see through a glass darkly, we're catching glimpses of, of your kingdom come. And so we pray for more. And we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And we pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you lift our heads and our hearts with that today? I just sense in this room that there's probably a lot of people that need a little encouragement. So Holy Spirit, would you breathe life And would you breathe courage? And would you remind us that you are with us? We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.